This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where certain things are fixed, the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. Hey, welcome to Pines and Perspectives. So, Cullen, what'd you drink in this week? Man, I just couldn't help myself. I had to drink my favorite beer over again. <laughs> I know I drank it last week, but I just can't help myself. I'm so I'm so distraught. I would typically get this beer in April and September. Right. And because of COVID, I didn't get it again in September. So I'm drinking off last year's supply, but uh, I'm drinking the 120-minute IPA from Dogfish Head Brewery, mm. and it's 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 just supreme. It, it you know, honestly, when it comes out fresh off the fresh from the brewery, it's twenty two dollars for a four pack. So it's really expensive beer, and that's for a reason yeah. because it's glorious. It's an experience with Jesus. Well, that's a, <laughs> actually what I was about to say. It, it is one of the only beers that I think is the closest thing to deification. <laughs> yeah. Clayton, Clayton doesn't even drink it because he can't afford it. I can't afford it. I'm a broke college student, <laughs> yeah. but it's so good. I'm a broke pastor. I just I just make it happen. <laughs> like, to all of our donors, I appreciate you. <laughs> so Cheers. I'm drinking the St. Arnold's uh, Oktoberfest, which is, you know, it's great. But Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Mm. Oh gosh, that's mm. my favorite Oktoberfest. Next, second, second to the Carbock. Ah, uh, I think that one is a touch sweet for me. It's the Shiner. I go back and forth because I think the Shiner has a level of complexity that the yeah. um or sorry, it's less sweet, mm. but the St. Arnold's has a level of complexity that the Shiner doesn't have. That's what I like about it is that it is sweet. You get these caramel sweetness from the malt. Um, and the the hops doesn't take over, right? Whereas I think in the Shiner the hops takes over a bit. But yeah, but I'm a hop head. I know I I am too. But when I want an Oktoberfest, I want it balanced. Um. Anyways, so we're talking about the Nicene Creed. What up? Yeah, and specifically the God part of the Nicene Creed. Yeah, so if you don't know, the Nicene Creed is a creed developed in 325, um, the year 325, in response to a guy named Arius about the situation that is rising about Jesus. What do we actually think about Jesus and the Trinity yeah. in general? Um, and so a group of church fathers get together in 325 and they develop the Nicene Creed. And it's important. It's it's a development of the Apostles' Creed, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks. Uh, I want to dive into the Nicene Creed first because it's a development of the Apostles' Creed, and, it, and so it develops some things that the Apostles' Creed leaves out, but it also incorporates some elements of Greek philosophy that the Apostles' Creed doesn't. Right. And so I want to expose you to the super um, philosophical version before I take you back to the original. Right. So that you kind of understand more about what they're combating uh, versus what they've just come up with based on 
uh, who Jesus was. Yeah. All right, cool. So we're going to first start with the God part. And the Nicene Creed is broken into three parts, all based around the Trinity, the three persons of God. Mm -hmm. So you have God the Father, you have God the Son, which is Jesus, and you have God the Holy Spirit, the Forgotten One. Right. Especially in fundamentalism, we don't have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Bible. Yeah. Like, the Spirit is forgotten and, amongst fundamentalists. And, and if you come from a different tradition, um, and you may have not heard this term Holy Spirit before, um, because your your text may read Holy Ghost. Holy Ghost. Or yeah. your... Um, your tradition may refer to this part of the Trinity as the Holy Ghost. Um, or just the Spirit. Or there just are, the Spirit. There are expressions that um, just say the Spirit. Right. Um, same part of God. Yeah. yeah same yeah, entity. Yeah. Same same person of, G- of God. Yeah. So in the Nicene Creed, it begins. And so if you're just joining us for the first time, I would invite you to go back and listen to the first two episodes. But the reason we're talking about the Nicene Creed is because it is Wellhouse Church's statement of faith. Yeah. It is the essentials of faith that we have established as the foundation of Christian orthodoxy. The essentials of faith. Yeah. And so we want to go through it because... For most of us, because Clayton and I were were brothers and we grew up in uh, fundamentalist Christian expressions, it wasn't until I got to grad school that I even knew that the Nicene Creed existed. And you only know about it because I talked to you about it. Yeah, I didn't know about it until high school because you were in grad school learning about the Nicene Creed. Very quickly after that, I joined a church that was a part of fundamentalism that taught like hardcore theology. Right. But, right. Um, they were creedal to some extent, maybe yeah. not in recitation of creeds, yeah. but they taught creeds. And that's more how I know the, the knowledge that comes from the creeds. Yeah. Um, but Cullen did introduce me to them when I was in high school. And most people may not even have heard this. Yeah. Right? So if you, so because we are, grew up in fundamentalist Baptist, most of the family friends that we have or people that we grew up with are fundamentalist slash fundamentalist Baptist because you can't yeah. be a fundamentalist charismatic. You can be. Right? And so, um, or fundamentalist Methodist or high church. Like, you can be Wherever a fundamentalist. You, whatever tradition you come from, there is a fundamental piece of it. Right, right, exactly. And, and most of the time, that's identified by a few different things that we'll go into on another podcast. But if... By and large, if you grew up in fundamentalism, odds are you were not creedal, which means you have no idea what the Nicene Creed is. Yeah. And so we, because we um, have adopted the Nicene Creed as our statement of faith, we wanted to go through and kind of explain the creeds to people. Because honestly, every Christian knows... Or maybe better said, every Christian of any length knows that we should all be people who believe in the Trinity. Yeah. But what they don't know is that comes from the Nicene Creed. Like, that doesn't come from the Bible. Mm -hmm. So people who just say they're just reading the Bible, no, you're not, bro. 
you're also influenced by the creeds, even yeah. if you don't know it. For real. And so the Nicene Creed begins, and it says, we believe in one God. Yeah. That is so important. And that's what they open with, right? Um, that is the most important thing. Hands down, the most important thing. And if you're a music person, I want to point you to, excuse me, to We Believe by the Newsboys. Um, oh, so good. It's just the creed. It, it is literally the Nicene Creed. Um, uh, to another extent, just because... With some I, artistic, like... Yeah, just but. because I want to name drop, my my friend, Kyle Dobbs, has written a song on the Nicene Creed that he hasn't published yet. Uh, Kyle, you need to publish this. I know, dude. Bro, what are you doing with your life that you haven't published this song? Because it was so good. We need to record this. I up. have it recorded. Oh. He has not given me permission to release it yet. <gasps> oh, my gosh. Okay. It's so good. He's a worship pastor at Sterlingwood Church in Summerwood, North Shore, Texas. If, Is he still a worship pastor? Yeah. If okay. you are in that area, please go visit Summerwood. He's good. They are a great church. Kyle is the best. Yeah, he's good. Um, I've been listening to Kyle sing for a long time. Um, Most of your life. Yeah. I, I actually heard Kyle sing a couple months ago. Um, teared up a bit. Yeah. Teared up a he bit. He is the He's best. He's good. Um, so, um, the God part. Yeah. So, we, we believe, believe in, in one God. That is foundational because out of Judaism, it is... You know, we don't think anything of it that we believe in one God, the creator. Right. Right. It's like, oh, okay, cool story, bro. But like in the ancient world and specifically in the ancient Near East where the Old Testament and specifically the Torah is written, polytheism is pervasive. Like everybody yeah. believes in multiple gods. And we'll talk about this at another time it's not really the time to go into it but people hear me we're not the only people that have a flood story we're not the only people that have a legend about how we came up with multiple languages every ancient near eastern culture has a way to explain that like we we're not the only ones that have that theirs are all rooted in polytheism there are yeah. multiple gods and those fractions happen by either different gods expressing themselves on earth or humanity expressing themselves to certain gods other than or different than other gods and that's how it happens yeah so what's important for you to know as a listener is that polytheism is everywhere in the ancient world because of that it is vital that you understand that we believe in one God, the one. Shema, Deuteronomy six five. Yes. There is one God in three parts. In three parts, which we talked about a bit last week. Yeah, so we um, introduced it. It it's not the easiest thing to introduce. It's not the easiest thing to understand. And no. I understand, like, and I grasp that. Yeah. I also don't need you to fully understand it. 
We are a line trying to explain a cube. Yeah, uh, according to C.S. Lewis, like that, that, that is what it is. Um, there is no way that we can ever even begin to understand the nature of God. We are finite beings trying to explain an infinite God. Yeah, we were. We cannot do it. We were talking on a, uh, another podcast that. Um, if you didn't listen to this week, you should go listen to, um, that God is complex, like yeah. wine, right? Like this St. Arnold's Oktoberfest. He has layers. Probably more like this IPA. <laughs> the complexity between the two is clearly in favor of this 120. Yes. I mean, fair, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> The, the the point I'm trying to make though is that God has layers. Yeah. Right. I'm I'm not saying that God is beer. I'm not saying that God is wine. I, what I'm saying is that God is complex. Yeah. He has layers. There there is things to him that we just can't understand. Yeah, and I um, think that's important. And. To, to all my people out there, uh, I would confidently say, if you think you've figured out God, you're probably a heretic. Probably. I think, so credit and kudos to my mentor, Randy Hatchett, if you're listening. Love you, bro. Um, a very old and wise man who is a professor of me in undergrad. He told me a long time ago, if if you ever think you've resolved the tensions in Scripture, you've probably fallen into heresy because you can't understand fully the complexities of God. Yeah. That has stuck with me forever. Yeah. It, it's hard to deal with. It is because we live in an information age. So if we encounter something that we can't understand— we're um, infatuated with the need to understand it. Yeah, I I dare you to Google what is God. <laughs> oh my God! Please don't. Please. What it's gonna don't. do is it's going to confuse you, right? Um, if you do that, you're gonna leave that Google search more confused than you've ever been. Hands down, um, it's unavoidable. But the deal is, is that if you're pursuing the idea of what God is, it's going to leave you confused. Yeah. It, it can't not. You're trying to explain something that you are incapable of understanding. Yeah. To its fullness. We can yeah. understand it to a degree, but the idea that we can understand the fullness of the complexities of God is asinine. Yeah. And, and there's so many different ideas and opinions on who God is, what God is, right? Um, with within, just within Orthodox Christianity. Oh yeah, right. Um, that doesn't include a Christian adjacent no, expressions. No. Um, excuse me. So we we really don't know anything. And, and just fundamentally, we have to make that point. To some extent, it's an element of faith. 
I mean, yes. there are things that we can know. Sure. There are natural revelation and general revelation. And then you as an individual can experience special revelation that you yourself know. Yeah. But what you yourself know is not always translatable to another. No. And, and especially about God, we have one God and that one God expresses himself to you in a multitude and myriad of ways yeah. that he may not express himself to another individual. Yeah, on yesterday's episode of uh, Practicing Presence, we, we talked about this. Yeah. That there is so many different ways that we can experience God uh, through our senses, and, and not just limited to senses, but a, a lot of different ways too, right? It, and so that just shows you who God is. Yeah, for sure. Right? Um, and, and there's so much to it. Yeah. And so it's beautiful. It's, it's vital that we understand as Christians that we believe in one God. Yeah. That even though we have three persons of God, we believe in one God. Yes. And the first person, the source of Godness, if we could say that is the father almighty. Mm. That is the second line of the creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Mm. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, the best place that I could point you to is to Jesus' baptism. Mm. Yeah. I think, you know, we we could potentially point you to Moses in the burning bush. We could potentially potentially point you to Noah in the ark. Yeah. We could potentially point you to any number of places where God um, voices himself in the Old Testament. Yeah. Because we don't fully know if that's God the Father or God the Holy Spirit. To some extent, spirit and wind and breath are all the same word. So... When it's a voice, it could be spirit or it could be father. Right. It, it could be the manifestation of either. I think collectively but, within fundamentalism, it's the idea that it's father. Um, um, I mean, from my experience, at least. Um, why, why do you say that? Because at Jesus' baptism, um, it's... While it's not clear whether Jesus just hears it, or Jesus and John, or Jesus and all the other people, or all the other people that are there, if there's other people there, right? Yeah. Um, it's it, but we hear God's voice, right? We see Jesus in the flesh, and then the Holy Spirit comes down like a dove, right? So the yeah. voice. Could we could argue is when we hear or see the voice of God in Scripture that it's probably God the Father. Like that's an argument to be made. I'm not ready to stand on that side, but yeah, I think um, you could say that. And I don't. I, I'm not going to say you're wrong because at Pentecost we have right the sending of the Spirit, which which seems to be a unique and monumental thing so i'm not going to say you're wrong but there are expressions that would say 
you know, that may be the spirit or the move of the spirit in the old Testament. Uh, Yeah. And I think that's totally valid. So, but, but with that, we, we here specifically have the father almighty, which we can definitely identify in the new Testament. Yeah. And it's in the position of Jesus' baptism. And you have, so for for our listeners that are not listening on the YouTube platform, I'm going to try to explain this with my voice. But for our listeners on YouTube, I'm going to show you in a hierarchy with my hands. In this, if, if God is an, in a position of equality, so I'm using equality because of Philippians 2. For Jesus did not count equality with God something to be grasped or exploited. Mm. If God is in a position of equality, when Jesus is baptized, he's dunked underwater, and then there comes a point where a voice from heaven comes and says, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. So you have an elev- a, an, a proclamation of the elevation of God the Father. Right. That there's a sonship that happens between God the Father and Jesus. Right. But then in that same element, you have, and the Spirit descended upon him like a dove and rested, remained, goes below the surface of himself indwelling him and as the following verses say and led him into the desert so you have this this element that there are three persons functioning in different ways and immediately god the father establishes himself as the top of the food chain, like as the source of godness. This is my beloved son. Mm. Now, there's a there's an element that we need to explore and experience in the son and the spirit. I think John 5 is a great way to do that. Jesus says, I give you my spirit in John 5. So the spirit and Jesus are more closely identified as, you know, linear equals. Right. Whereas God, the father and God, the son are maybe more not superior and inferior, but there's an element because in John five, Jesus says, I do nothing that the father wills not. Right. Right. It's like, I do what my father wills. So there is an element of submission. Right. Right. That happens there, whether that's voluntarily or forced, is up to the expression of faith. Right. But above all, across expressions, we would say that we believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Right. He is almighty, supreme being of godness. He is ultimate, Um, which can be confusing Like when we start talking about this. Um, I, I hate to use the word hierarchy, but it, it seems like that might be kind of the, the uh, like a, a power differential almost. Not power, because they're equal. It's um, 
maybe maybe better said and and here's the thing that I want our listeners to understand we're a line trying to explain a cube right like we absolutely we only experience language through metaphors and our metaphors always break down at some level and so with that it's not necessarily this hierarchy it's more that there's a submission of status right um yeah, I think that's the best way that we can think about it. We can't fully understand this. And f- to I think I threw this out in the opening episode of Pints and Perspectives, but just to just to show you what I mean when I say this, we commonly in Christian orthodoxy say that God is all powerful. Right. Meaning that he's strong and he can do anything he wants. Well, Augustine in the fourth century comes up with this idea and he says, is God really all powerful? Is God so powerful that he can make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? It's like, okay, Augustine, that's a stupid question. It's it's extremely stupid question. But it's really not because what it does is sets a standard that we are trying to explain something that we can't explain. Right. I mean, what Augustine is really saying is either God is so strong and powerful that he can build a rock so big that he can't pick it up, or he's not powerful enough and not strong enough to build a rock so big that he can't pick it up. Well, I feel like kind of what's happening there is that he's, what he's trying, what he's really trying to explain is that God can set limits for himself. No, what he's really trying to do is that our explanation of God is deficient. That we ourselves can't explain the complexities of God is what Augustine's trying to do. Augustine's not trying to say that God limits himself because I don't think God does limit himself. You don't think so? No, not at all. I think what God does is God is, and if we say this because we're talking about God the Father, God the Father is a supreme being that we are incapable of understanding. Jesus is the human form, the moral example, the Christus Victor of that. Um, Dang, I just realized I probably need to identify all of the things I just said to our listeners. Yeah. Okay, so this is going to get into the Jesus section of our podcast but the moral example, the moral exemplar, the Christus Victor, the substitutionary atonement are all atonement theories of Jesus. And so what they really are is they are a way of explaining what is accomplished when Jesus is on earth. Mm. As the son of God, what happens when Jesus is on earth? And we'll talk about this more next week when we can talk about Jesus as the section of the Nicene Creed. But for for our purposes here, what we need to understand is that God the Father is supreme. He is almighty. He is what he is. Right. Like that exists outside of who we are. Yeah. That's not to say that God is immutable. And when I say immutable, so you have immutable, immutable. 
Immutable would mean that God doesn't change. Mutable would be that God is capable of change. Right. And to our listeners, if you're listening, I posted this on my story uh, last week on Monday, but on Instagram, follow me at Pastor Cullen uh, for more insights like this. But as this question, is God capable of change? Because if you say yes, that God is capable of change, okay, where does that change stop? Mm. Like, where, where's the limit of what God can change in himself? If you say, no, he's not capable of change, what do you do with Jesus suffering on the cross? Because suffering is change from goodness and almighty. Right. So what what is this element of change that happens here? Yeah. Honestly, we probably can't know. I myself am going to say that God is capable of change or at the very least for my fundamentalist friends who struggle with that language, I'm going to say that God is capable of experiencing change. Mm. Because if God is a God of love, being present in the world is change. If we think about God the Father as source of Godness, creator of the world, he is supreme and ethereal. So he's above us. The fact that God himself can become incarnate makes him capable of change okay for the purpose of love so this comes from a guy named horace bushnell a 19th century american theologian um, who began to think about atonement in a different way but god is almighty in himself god the father is almighty he is the source of godness and it is his job as god to find a way to not only restore humanity an inferior being to godness it is also his job to identify with humanity who is according to genesis 1 and 2 made in his image. It is this place that in, in an ideal world, we would be God-like. We would be deified. Right. Which we're going to talk about more in... I just feel like I have to say this. To our listeners, like... Theology is a long road that when you feel like you've reached the end, you just realize you've reached the second wind. <laughs> You're not at the end. There is always more questions to be answered. Oh, for sure. That, that is why like guys like uh, Thomas Aquinas um, yeah. literally spent their lives dedicating themselves to theology. 27 years old, a year away from having my third third degree in theology 
And I feel like I have more questions now than I did when I started. You probably do. No, it's not probably. I know I do. That is the most terrifying thing about me going to get a theology degree in the next few years. That is the most terrifying thing. Because you have no idea what kind of questions you're going to come up with. Oh my gosh, I'm so scared. (laughs) Yeah, it happens. And it, it goes further for us because... In the creed, it says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Mm. So we have this declaration in the creed that God the Almighty is maker of heaven and earth. Now, what does that actually mean? You got me, bro. I'm not 100% sure. And I think that's important for our listeners to know. Like, you don't have to have it all figured out. Yeah. Because once again, if you have it all figured out, there's a really good chance you're in heresy. Because you are a line trying to explain a cube. And so with, with this... One thing that I want you to understand is we we said in episode one that at some level you have to believe that God created the world. Yeah. And in some way, shape, or form, you have to believe that. Um and and I believe that firmly. If you want to identify as a Christian, you have to believe at some level God created the world, that that God was the cause of creation. Yeah. Now, whether you show up with a young earth creation or you show up with evolution or big bang or old earth or any number of the hundred of creation options you have, one of those has to originate with God being the cause of creation. Yeah. Um, now for our fundamentalist brothers and sisters, like if you hear me say evolution in that, like you cringe that's okay like there are any number of people who would cringe at that yeah but at the same level there are any number of christians who've said god has given us the capacity to understand science and we should maybe take into account what science has to say yeah so big bang evolution like maybe those are viable stories and the way that they reconcile that with the Bible is to say that the Bible is a poetic or literary device to say that God initiated the introduction of humanity and the world and shows his intimate relationship with that. Right. Which we're going to go into a, a, a little bit more in depth in a later episode. I think we talked about this. Um, correct. Like about creation, about creation versus uh, evolution in the Big Bang. Yeah, um, for sure. We're gonna we're gonna explore those because I think it's it's vital. Because fundamentalists would say if you don't believe that Genesis one, two, and three are literally interpreted, yeah, you're a heretic, right? Which it is just not the case. No, there are any number of ways to think that God was the cause of creation, 
that don't res- don't revolve around you have to interpret that literally. Yeah. Because to a certain extent, and we're going to talk about this more, go read Genesis 1 and 2 very carefully, comparing them to one another, and you're going to find that they don't match up. Yeah. So it's okay if you interpret them literally, but you got some pretty big hermeneutical jumps you got to overcome. And specifically, I'm going to go ahead and identify them for you. Genesis 1, vegetation is planted on the ground before man is made. At the beginning of Genesis 2, before vegetation is present on the ground, man is made. Yeah. So, like, you got some pretty big hermeneutical jumps you have to overcome if you identify that way about creation, which is okay if you can do that. But there are a lot of people who can't seem to overcome that, and so they resolve to saying that maybe this is more of a generic story that says that God is the cause of creation and, remind you of Genesis 2, that God walked with Adam and Eve, that he's intimately involved in his creation, but we don't know exactly how that happened. Yeah. And then science tells us it happened through Big Bang and evolution. Right. Which are not fully removed from Scripture in their mind because you have Genesis 1, God spoke into existence, light and dark. Right. Big Bang. And Adam is made from the earth, from the dust of the ground. Right. God made Adam. Okay, Big Bang and evolution. Right. So, like, let's let's not, like, chastise people for their position on the issue, what we should all resolve to is that some form God is creator of heaven and earth. And and if right now you're confused about not knowing where, um, where you are in relation to this, um, that's okay. Yeah. It's not important. This is probably this is probably one of the, the, this is definitely falls in the non-essentials category. How you go about that God was the cause of creation right. is the non-essential. Right. That God is was the cause of creation is essential. Yeah. So the fact yeah. that God was the cause of creation is essential. The manner in which he created is non-essential. Right. I, I have been on both sides of this argument. Um, and actually like at this very moment, I am kind of, I don't know. Yeah. I think, and, and, and once again, I think if you find yourself in a position where you're rooted and unchanging, you probably need to check yourself because yeah. I'm fixing to graduate in a year with my third degree in this realm and I fall back and forth between them because scripture speaks to different elements or scripture fails to speak to certain elements. Like it's okay if you don't have it figured out. Yeah. The, the primary factor is that you can identify that God is the cause of this thing. Yeah. And then lastly, in the God, the Father section of the Creed, it says in the very beginning, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
of all things visible and invisible. That's also important because we are told in Genesis 1 and 2 that God is maker of things visible. We are never told how God is maker of things invisible. The things that we can't see, but yet we're told about time and time again in the scriptures, which is the spiritual realm. We are never told how God is maker of that realm. Yeah. But yet it is vital because if you can affirm that God is creator, you have to affirm that God is creator of everything. Yeah. If not, God is not the supreme being of the universe, and therefore Christianity is flawed because he is inferior to something superior. Right. So we're not fully told we have that weird thing in Ezekiel where the stars fall from heaven, which we interpret as Satan being cast out of heaven. Right. Um, But we also have this weird statement in Genesis 2 that Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. And so it's almost like the earth and the spiritual realm are these kind of parallel universes that overlap. And in Utopia, which is the Garden of Eden, they exist on this parallel metaphysical plane where they both in time ex- time and space exist in perceivable um, expressions. But when sin enters, it is a barrier that separates them. So what do you do with the Enoch story? So go ahead and and detail that for our listeners. So Enoch was this really old dude who um, was said in scripture to walk with God um, and never died. He ascended into heaven. Um, And his son, uh, I always like, Botcher, the his name. What what's his name? Um, Mel, uh, uh, gosh, it starts with an M. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, but um, the the problem that I see there um, in, in that argument of of the utopia and, and sin being the barrier between the, the spiritual realm and the physical realm. Um, is sin probably would have already entered the world at that time, right? Because Enoch was 900 and something years old at the time when he ascended. Um, so that would have meant that Adam and Eve would have died a long time ago. Now you put Enoch in a, in a time period that he doesn't exist in. So Melchizedek is the longest lasting person after Adam and Eve recorded in Genesis, and he's 896 years old. Enoch is several books away from that story. Now, so what? Okay. Enoch is recorded way later in Genesis. I mean, in, in the Torah. He's not even recorded in Genesis. Right. 
So Melchizedek is the oldest person in Genesis. He's 896 years old. Mm-hmm. And he's like the fourth generation of people after. Okay. So no, your, your Enoch thing there in, in relation to time and space is not what's happening. But I think your overall premise is um, what happens is God makes Adam and Eve and they are walking together in this like metaphysical plane where all things are in unison. Well, when God identifies the sin within them, those planes separate. Mm. So in the narrative story, God puts a cherubim in front of the gate of the garden right. and cast them out into the earth general, the Hebrew to the land. Like just the general thing that I've made, mm. right? Like Eden was this place of paradise, this place of utopia. But now you have caused something of separation between these. And so there's a barrier between that. So now you have been cast out of utopia and you just exist in the land, which is the earth. And so because of that, what ends up happening is this this gap that was these planes, when sin enters, it becomes this barrier between them and these planes begin to get farther and farther apart. And the whole goal as humanity continues to sin, we, um, for lack of a better metaphor, we descend ourselves deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. And God remains the same in his constant of holiness. And we continue to descend ourselves and descend ourselves and descend ourselves to which point God has to dive down and insert himself in our nasty with Jesus in order to restore right. restorative justice, restore us back to equity. Right. So what does that do for the Enoch story, though? Enoch is so far later that he's just at a place where he ascends to Godness escaping death. Yeah, He's a foreshadowing but, of Jesus. But it also says that he walked with God. Yeah, it's all... He, Enoch is the middle marker of the Old Testament narrative. Mm-hmm. So you have elements of Adam that are present. Right. And then you have the walking with God. Mm-hmm. And you have elements of Jesus that are present the ascending to God. Right. And Enoch marks the middle. Mm-hmm. He is the fulfillment of the old, the walking with God. Right. And the foreshadowing of to come, the ascension to God. Okay. Enoch just happens to be a narrative's like placeholder. Like okay. we, we probably shouldn't read more into that than than he is. He's a placeholder in the narrative of what Adam was and could have been mm. to what Jesus is and ends up being. I see. Okay. Um, that That's cleared up now. And I wonder if any viewers um, had that same question in their mind. Um, yeah, it's, and I want to, I want to be careful here. 
when when I say that he's a narrative placeholder, I don't mean that he's only present in narrative fiction. Like I I think Enoch's a real person, yeah. But in the way he's told in the story, he holds a very specific place, which is to say, he's a middle marker of what Adam could have been in a foreshadowing of Jesus what of what Jesus would become. Right. Okay. Um, okay. Well, that, that answers a question. Um, yeah. So to, to the God part at, at some level, you got to believe that God created the heaven and the earth and he's a creator of all things visible and invisible. Like God has to be the supreme being no matter what. Right. That is the essentials of faith for God the Father. That he is one God. He's God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and maker of all things visible and invisible. He is the supreme being of godness present in the universe. Yeah. That is... God the Father part of the Nicene Creed. And it is super complex. Um, it always will be. That's why this episode is already 49 minutes long. Um, I don't know if there is a way to simplify it more. Um, I feel like I've done the best that I can. Uh, and I've used metaphors, analogy, and imagery from my professors, mentors, and coaches. And I don't know that there's any easier way to do it. No. It is just what it is. And one thing that you have to understand is that we are a line trying to explain a cube. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I think that's all we got. Um it's what I got, man. So, thanks for joining us, guys. Uh, s- sorry for the 50-minute-long episode. Um, but it's an important conversation. Um, it is an important, yeah. essential piece of doctrine. Um, and I think that's important for our listeners. If if we go longer than 25 minutes, it's not because we just want to hear ourselves talk. It's because it's important. It's because it's important. Like Our goal is 25 minutes. Yeah, and we way overshot that. <laughs> yeah, over double. <laughs> yeah, thanks guys for uh, hanging in with us. Um, and come back next week um, so that we can talk about the Jesus part of the Nicene Creed. For part one, we're going to have two parts on Jesus. Oh, that's right. We, we do have two parts on Jesus. So come back for part one of the Jesus part.